We're in John 6, and like I said earlier, we're going to conclude John chapter 6. And so just a little, I guess, backtrack and filling in the gaps from where we were and what we're going to be, uh, where we're going to. Um, We've been basically covering this long chapter here, and it's just a section that talks about basically Jesus being the bread of life. And so he feeds the, the, the multitude of people previously uh, in the chapter, and um, it's just an amazing miracle that took place. And he was, he was demonstrating his deity. He was demonstrating who he is. He was not just an ordinary rabbi or teacher, but he's the son of God. He has the power to do a miracle. He has the power to feed thousands of people with a few little fish and a, and a little bit of bread. And as a result of the miracle, there were some people, some, some Jewish people that saw the miracle and they began to seek after Jesus the next day. They woke up the next day and Jesus is not there. His disciples had left, had gotten to a boat and gone on, on the other side of the sea to Capernaum. And they're looking for Jesus and they see there was only one boat that left and they didn't see Jesus go in the boat. And so they're, they're perplexed, they're confused, where's Jesus? And it says that they sought after Jesus, they sought after him. Sounds pretty profound, right? They're seeking Jesus. You hear a lot about seekers that are seeking after God. So they're seeking after Jesus and they get to the other side and they find Jesus and they ask Jesus, where have you been? What are you doing here? We've been looking for you. And what does Jesus say? He confronts them, right? And that's what we covered last week. He confronts the hypocrisy of their heart. And he says, you're not seeking me. You're not a seeker because you ultimately believe in me. You know, because the sign, what what he said was, you're not seeking me because of the sign. Because the sign would have proven to you, should have proven to you that I was a son of God. You're not seeking me because you believe in me as a son of God. You're seeking me because your bellies were filled. And they were seeking Jesus for temporary satisfaction, for their temporary needs being met. And then Jesus goes into this discourse with them, goes back and forth with them, and, and he's basically culminating his whole, this whole discourse with, with telling these people that he is the bread of life, and that through, through consuming him spiritually, through believing in him, that they can have satisfaction, that he is the bread of life, the eternal bread of life, and that through him they can have salvation. And, and he's trying to get them to see that they're seeking him for all the wrong reasons, and they're seeking him to try to find temporary satisfaction, and he's letting them know that it is only through him that they can have temporary and eternal satisfaction. And that the eternal satisfaction is the only satisfaction that really matters and really counts, eternal life. Now you can have your life filled with temporary pleasures and satisfaction and happiness. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if you have not been satisfied with Jesus through saving faith and are not prepared for eternal life, all of the earthly pleasures and satisfactions and happinesses that we experience in this life, as good as they are and and as good as they can be from God, none of that matters at the end of the day. And that's ultimately what Jesus is trying to get them to see. And so you would think Jesus has really exposed them and he's been really upfront with them. You'd think that's all he would need to do, but he kicks it up a notch in this next section. And he makes it difficult. He makes it difficult. Jesus should make it difficult for people to believe, should he? That's what you would think, right? That's the idea. You've got to make it easy for the seeker to believe. 
Because if people are seeking, you should make it easy for them because they're wanting to know who God is. But Jesus, the founder of Christianity, (laughs) the one who started this whole thing, he makes it difficult for people to believe in this section. And actually throughout the whole Gospels, he makes it difficult. for he, he puts stumbling blocks in front of people to believe in him. And that's counterintuitive for us as Christians today in a lot, a lot of seeker-sensitive type church cultures. But Jesus, he's the one who founded this whole thing. He's the one who rose from the dead. So he's got the, the, the right to kind of make the rules, to set the parameters here. And so we're going to read a section of scripture that... It's just, it's amazing what he does here. So let's read the section. It's 30 verses. So hang in here. We're going to cover, we're going to read these 30 verses. And then we're going to kind of look at an overview of the whole chapter. And we're going to look at what, what, what we've learned and what God is showing us through John 6. So John 6, 41, starting in uh, verse 41, we'll go through 71. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? They're like, we know this guy. Like, I had lunch. I used to go to school with him. Like, I know his mom, his dad, his aunt, his uncle, his grandparents. We went to the same church together. Like, I know this guy. How does he, how is it that he is saying he's the son of God? He's come down from heaven. I mean, that'd be like, one of us with our close friends or relatives coming up and making a statement like that. That's kind of their thinking. Like we know him. We know his parents, his father, his mother. How, how is he saying this? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. I <laughs> mean, just listen to this. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. They're complaining because they're thinking they're so familiar with him and they're, they're thinking, how can this guy be from God? And he says, oh, by the way, You may not think I'm from God, but I just want you to know, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him first. So strong from our Lord. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That verse right there, that is so, let's let's go stay on, on 45. Listen to what he's telling these Jews. He's saying it is written in the prophets, right? It's written, it's written in the Old Testament, in the prophets, in the Old Testament. And these Jews would have known the Old Testament, the prophets. It's written in, in the prophets. He's quoting, and they will be taught by God. Meaning the, the Jews are going to be the ones that are going to be the, the keepers of the law. The law of God was written amongst the Jews and Moses was the keeper of the law. Everyone who has heard, these people who who are supposed to have been taught, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, if you say you really know the Father and you have been taught by God, they're going to come to me. So what is he confronting him with? He's saying, he's saying if you really know the Father, you come to me, but because you don't come to me, because, you th- because you're too familiar with me, because you think it can't be possible, because you know my mom and my dad and my aunt and my uncle and my family, because you don't come to me, then you don't know the Father. There's other places in the Gospels. Who, there's other places in the Gospel where Jesus looks specifically to the Pharisees and he tells them, not only do you not know the Father, but your Father is who? The devil. Beelzebub. Jesus cut it straight. He didn't mince words because he's after something. It's not, he's not trying to offend for the purpose of offending. He's not trying to offend just to make people mad. He's, he's trying to speak the truth and uncover their hypocrisy. 
and get them to the place where they will acknowledge their need for him. That's what God does in in all of our lives. That's what God wants to do in anyone's life that does not know him. Let's go to verse 46. We're not going to get through 71 here tonight at this rate. Um, Verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. A little side note here. Verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except who? He who is from God. So people, just a side note. People who write books about going to heaven and coming back. They say they see God. Jesus says right here, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. So they say, people say, I've been to heaven, I've seen God, and they come back and they want to talk about it. I just would be leery. Be leery of that. No one can see the Father except he who comes from God. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Wow. Verse 52, the Jews obviously then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can he give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus kicks it up a notch again and says, So I truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. What's Jesus saying here? It's, a, it's an analogy. It's a, it's a word picture. It's a picture of, it's contrasting. Jesus was the king of contrasting. He would contrast in, in, in his communication. If you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, you got a contrast. Jesus would, he was looking at, 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 at the Pharisees, looking at the Jews that were following him, and he would tell them, you've heard it said in the law, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't do this and don't do that and what would he say he would compare and contrast but I say to you this is true and this is right and this is the standard so he was comparing and he's doing the same thing here. he's comparing and contrasting he's making a word picture he's comparing the difference between temporary earthly satisfaction through food and eternal satisfaction through him through a commitment by faith in him and that Yes, we get filled by earthly food and we eat bread and we drink water and, and we, are, we are temporarily satisfied. But, but if we will eat, take in, receive into our life his work on the cross, what he did for us on the cross through the breaking of, of his body and the shedding of his blood, we can have eternal life, eternal satisfaction. And this is the picture he's using. And it is difficult. And this is what we're gonna see here. Verse 57, as the living father sent me and I live Because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Verse 58, and this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. He's saying what your fathers had to offer, your spiritual fathers had to offer, because what they had to offer ultimately was supposed to culminate in me. What they offered is temporary, and they ate it and they died. But if you will receive me, You'll have eternal life. You will live forever. 
Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in, in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, this is what they said. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Why would Jesus say a hard saying? Wouldn't he want to make it easy? Right? Why, 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 Jesus, why are you making it difficult for people to believe in you? True believers. And, and that's not something that we're comfortable with. We don't really like that subject, that idea that there can be a true believer and a false believer. But we see at the beginning of John 6, he makes it clear that there were people that were seeking him, pursuing after him, and their motivations were not true. Their motivations were not real. They were not true believers, true seekers. Their motivations were not godly. And, and, and that is always the case. There's always going to be a mixture of sheep and goats. There's always going to be people. There will be people. Matthew seven twenty one in that section Jesus says that many on that day, that day of judgment when we stand before the Lord, there will be many on that day that are going to say, Lord, we did miracles in your name. We cast out devils in your name. We did many works in your name. And it says that the, that the Father will look at them. Jesus will look at them and, and he'll say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I don't know you. I've never known you. That, that is a, a sobering, scary truth, reality. That we all have to, to face, and it's true. And this is what Jesus is getting at. That, that discipleship, following Jesus, is not simply just reciting a prayer. Following Jesus is not simply just saying, assenting to some, some, some mental things about what you believe about God. Following Jesus is eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Following Jesus is believing the hard saying about Jesus. Following Jesus is an all-in commitment. It's not a halfway acknowledgement of who you think he is and what he can do for you. That's Christianity. And this is what he's getting at. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Wow. And after this, this is John 6, 6, 6, 6, 6, 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, hey, you want to go? Here's your opportunity. Everyone's, everyone's getting out of Dodge. This is your chance. You're going to go with those guys too? Simon Peter, as much as he put his foot in his mouth, he, he got it right here. Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? For we have come to know, for we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered, did I not choose you, the twelve? This is so, look, look, listen to what, even in Peter's bold declaration, that Jesus is the Son of God. He, Peter says, we have come to believe, to know and believe that you are the, the Son of God. And what does Jesus say? Did I, did I not choose you? Don't think for a second this is because of what you did. I chose you. 
I'm the one who saved you. It wasn't by your doing. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Speaking of Judas, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Okay, that's a nice section there, wasn't it? A lot of things we're not unpacking, a lot of things I'm choosing to not cover for the sake of you not being here till nine o'clock at night. So there's so much there. And I touched on a little bit as we were going through it. But what what I want to do is, is I want to look at everything that we have learned up to this point. And I just want to summarize. We're going to go back to some sections earlier in John 6. And we're going to end up where we just read. And and there's really just, it's not going to, we won't be too long. There's just really five things I think we have learned from this section. Five things. What have we learned about humanity, about God, and salvation? Humanity, God, and salvation in this chapter. The first one is this. People will pursue Christ for superficial reasons. People will pursue Christ for superficial reasons. That's what we see, John 6, 26. John, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me. So what I was referencing earlier. You're a seeker, not because you saw the signs and you believe I'm the Son of God, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. People will pursue Christ for the wrong reasons. They do it all the time. They do it all the time. They come after God for the wrong reasons. And some of it is because maybe, maybe they've been preached to a gospel that's not a true gospel. Maybe somebody has preached a gospel to people and has told them, here's the benefits plan, here's the benefits package. You come and receive God and you're going to get all of these things. And they don't preach the gospel the way Jesus preached it. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you have no part in me. And, and, and they've been preached a gospel that is a palatable gospel, a gospel that does not offend. We don't preach the gospel in, a, in offensive ways. But the gospel will offend people because what it does, what the gospel does is, is the gospel is like, a, is, like a, is like a surgical knife. It goes into the heart of man. And what do we know about the heart of man? In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is desperately wicked. It is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once lived. We are spiritually dead people before we come to faith in Christ. And the scalpel of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it comes in and it exposes and it cuts open and it reveals our sinfulness. It reveals our need for God. But if if a gospel is preached that does not expose the reality of sin in people's life, it is not a gospel. It is something else. It is a message that is intended to bring temporary happiness and meet temporary needs. But the gospel is meant to fulfill eternal needs. It's a gospel that's meant to save. Meant to save us from eternal wrath. You guys excited tonight, right? <laughs> you didn't know you're going to get this tonight, eternal wrath. But that's the gospel. And, and, and people will pursue Christ for all kind of superficial reasons. Here's some reasons that, that I, I came up with. They feel bad and want to appease their guilty conscience. So they say, you know what, I feel guilty. So they're kind of on the right track, you know, kind of a little bit. They're, they're feeling guilty about something. But that's not, that's not the reason why we believe in Jesus Christ and, and surrender to him. But that's, that is a superficial reason. They're trying to appease their guilty conscience. Sometimes, secondly, they're trying to even out the scale. That's a religious approach. 
I've got a lot of bad things on this side that I've been doing, and, and I've got a guilty conscience, so I, I, I need to pursue God to even out the scale. So just in case when I die, my good side outweighs my bad side, and God might be merciful to me. That, that is Islam. That is Islam. The, the God, the false God of Islam is, is an angry God. And people who follow him do not know if there ever is grace or peace from their false God. And they never know. And one sure way that they're told that they can assure themselves of heaven is martyrdom. And that's why you see what you see. That's why we see it. That's why we see terrorism like we see it. They're trying to even out the scale. Thirdly, they simply follow because their parents or grandparents did it. Superficial reason. No real heart, no real, no real commitment to Christ. They've, they've not totally devoted themselves to Christ. It's just religious routine and ritual. Fourthly, they're, they're seeking the benefits they believe come with following God. I've got a question for you. Are there benefits? Obviously, there are benefits. But salvation is not, we don't, to, to become a Christian, you don't, it doesn't start with the benefits. I mean, Jesus is the example I mean, look, look at what he says. Read the Gospels. Read the Apostle Paul. The Gospel message does not start with the benefits. The Gospel message starts with some really terrible news. And that's where it starts. And so if people come and they seek after God because, because of what they think they're going to get out of God. And, look, and that's kind of some perversion of all of that is, is the prosperity gospel, this idea that, 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 that you become a Christian, you serve God, and you're going to be healthy and wealthy, and everything's going to go smooth in your life, and you're going to drive the best car and have the biggest house and all of this. And that's a perversion of the gospel. It's a false gospel. And that prosperity gospel takes many different shapes and forms. It's not the true gospel. Lastly, here's another reason, not lastly, but just... Uh, the last reason I have here is that they are involved for self-centered reasons. You know, there's some people that can appear to be following God and appear to be genuine, but they're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. False teachers, false motivations, and false, false desires and are in it for the wrong reasons. What is the primary reason we should follow Christ? What's the primary reason? Philippians 2 explains this for us. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 Apostle Paul says this, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So now, he's provided a way of salvation through death on the cross. Therefore, Therefore, because he defeated death, because he defeated hell, because he defeated sin, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, this is the reason why we believe in him, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This is why we believe. We believe because his name is exalted above every other name because he died on the cross. He didn't just die, but he rose on the third day and God has highly exalted him. So we believe in him because he is worthy of our belief. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. That means everywhere. You can't get any other place than in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. 
everywhere is covered. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We believe in Jesus. The primary reason we should follow Jesus and believe in him is because he's worthy of it. If he never gives us anything, if he never heals us, if, we, if our marriage still is broken and fails, if, if we never are rich, if we never are wealthy, if we never have a great job, if God never ever does anything for us, we should believe in him because he's worthy that we should believe in him because God has highly exalted him because of the work of the cross and the resurrection. Amen? Amen. Okay. We've got to keep going here. People are going to follow Jesus. We've learned that in John 6. People will follow, pursue Christ for superficial reasons. Secondly, we've learned in this chapter that people will try to work for their salvation. People will try to work for their salvation. Let's look at John 6, 28. We saw this a couple weeks back. It's after Jesus confronts them because of their hip- the hypocritical reasons for following him. He says that you need to work for the bread that produces eternal life. So these Jews, that's a, that's a light bulb moment for them. So they say, okay, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And we talked about that a couple weeks back, that that is a tendency that humanity has, that we want to fall into the trap of working for our salvation, working for it. Works-based righteousness is the fundamental tenet of all false religious systems. Works-based righteousness, earning our righteousness, earning our right standing with God, being justified apart from faith and by works is the fundamental tenet of all false religious systems. In trying to determine if a system of belief aligns with the truth, listen, in trying to determine if a system of belief aligns with the truth of Scripture, you only have to ask one question. That's it. Some people are like, well, how do I know if this is good and this is true and this is right? If this religious system is right, what about these people? What about this group? What about that group? There's only one question you have to ask. I'm going to give that to you tonight. This is the question. You guys ready for it? This is the question you have to ask yourself. How can a person become justified before God in this system of belief? That's it. It's all about justification. It is all about justification. And justification is what? It's a legal term. To be justified before God means that you stand cleared of all charges right before a holy judge, a holy God that has the right to condemn you to an eternal hell. And to be justified means that God looks at you and does not hold your sins against you. And it is as if you have never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. So whatever system of belief, you want to know if it's true or right, whatever message you hear preached, that's the question you ask. What are they saying about how somebody can be justified, right, and righteous before holy God? And if they get it wrong, then you don't believe it. You don't follow it. You don't listen. If they add to the gospel... If they, make, if they make the gospel something that it's not by adding works to the gospel, it's a false gospel. It's not true. There, and, 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 and scripture tells us there's only one way to be justified. We're going to look at it right here, Romans 5, excuse me, Romans 4, 1 through 5. It says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Speaking about justification and righteousness. What shall we say? That, what, what did Abraham learn? What did he figure out? 
If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, right? Hey, you can boast, Abraham. If you did it, you can boast, but not before God. Can't boast before God about your works. What does Scripture say? That right there, look, just a little pause. I'm sorry. I'm not making much headway here. I didn't plan on expounding so much on these Scriptures, but that is such, I mean, write that on a card, put it on your fridge, What does scripture say? That should be your life motto as a Christian. Right there. You got a question? What does scripture say? Not your feelings, not your emotions. Oh, I feel like this is what I should do. I feel like the yada, yada, yada. Man, your feelings are like a roller coaster. They could be up one day, down the next. If you live life based according to your feelings and how you feel, you're going to quit. You're going to give up. You're going to go when you should stop. What does scripture say? That's, that's, that's where we get our truth from. Abraham, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't by works, it was by what? To believe means you have faith. He believed, he had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, who says, okay, I'm gonna work for it. Wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation, Right? So if you work for somebody, they are obligated to pay you because you earned it. It's an obligation. So if it is by works, well then it's not a gift. It's not grace. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly. That is so good. But to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And that is good stuff right there. Man, that's so good. God justifies the ungodly by faith. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by works, by faith, into this grace, this gift in which we stand. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. For when we were still, Romans 5, 6 through 11. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, man, that's, wow. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's so good. Man, I can't wait to go to the book of Romans. Man, that's, I, I love the book of Romans. That's some good stuff right there. That's powerful. Justification comes through faith. It is a for, when you become a Christian, it is not your righteousness that makes you right with God. You didn't do it. God, you didn't save yourself. It is a foreign righteousness that is given to you by God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says about Jesus, he who knew no sin, God made sin so that, so that in him, By faith in him, you might become, you might become the righteousness of God in 
Christ Jesus. God takes the righteousness of his perfect, sinless, spotless son. And he says, he says, Cedric, because you believe in me, I'm giving you my righteousness. That's what he says. And now, when God looks at Cedric, he doesn't see the sin, doesn't see the past, doesn't see failures, doesn't see any of that. He sees the very righteousness of the perfect son of God. That's what justification is. People will always try, though. They're going to keep trying to be good enough. But you're never good enough. Amen. Okay. Third thing we've learned from this section in John 6 is this. Salvation and sanctification are the work of God. Salvation and sanctification, that word sanctification is meaning our spiritual maturity, growing in Christ, being saved, and being sanctified, growing in Christ. That's the work of God. John 6, 29 says this. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. What is the work of God? That you believe in him whom he sent. Man, I can't get any more plainer than that, right? What is the work of God? God does the work, right? This is the work of God. He's the one who does it. What does he do? He, he causes you to believe, that you believe in him whom he sent. John six thirty seven. all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. It's the work of God. John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God saves. It's him who saves. It's not, it's not works. We don't save ourselves. Last verse, last section here. And I will raise him up on the last day. What does that phrase talk about? And I will raise him up on the last day. God saves you, and what does he do? He finishes it. I'm gonna raise him up on the, on the last day. Salvation, sanctification, this process. Point A is salvation. Point Z is eternity. In between A and Z, he makes you holy. Spirit of God dwells on, on the inside of you and he makes you more like him day by day. You, we, we don't live as perfect people as Christians. We're imperfect. Our spirit man dwells in a flesh that was trained by our sinful nature. But when we were saved, the sinful nature died. Only one new man rose, was risen up and that new nature dwells in our heart. But our flesh still needs to be trained to obey our new nature. It was trained to obey your sinful nature. And this is the middle ground between salvation and glorification. The middle ground between A and Z. And what does Jesus say? He says here in verse 44 that I will raise him up on the last day. All the ones that come to me because the Father drew them and sent sent them, I'm going to stick with them. And we talked about that last week. You can have assurance of your salvation that when you belong to God, when you are his child, he's not going to let you go. He's not going to give up on you. He's going to work on you. He's going to be faithful change you to sanctify you by the power of the word of God the power of salvation comes from God therefore salvation is a miracle and any work that God does he will not fail do you believe that when a God starts a work he's not going to fail and this is what we see scripture affirms this Philippians 1 3 through 11 I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine making my request for you all with joy For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident. You guys need some confidence? Being confident of this very thing. Where's our confidence rest? Of this very thing that he, God, who has begun a good work in you, will do what? 
will complete it until the last day, until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to complete it. If he started it, if he saved you, he's going to glorify you. He's going to complete it. I, I, I just got to say this. Okay, I know it brings up a conundrum in people's minds. So I, my job as a pastor is to try to help the conundrums in our mind. And you may not have a conundrum with this. But I may create a conundrum by trying to expound on the hypothetical conundrum. But we're going to deal with a conundrum. And this is the conundrum people have. Well, wait a minute. So you're trying to say that you can't lose your salvation. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Should I stop right here? Or do you guys need some further explanation? <laughs> okay, so then people always ask the question, well, what you, so, so you, you, you believe in once saved, always saved? I don't. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in once saved, always saved. I don't, because it's not true. Wait, now you're all confused. I got a big conundrum for you. Let me explain it to you. There's some nuances. The idea of once saved, always saved is this. I get saved, and you know what? doesn't matter. Live like I want to live. Live like the devil, whatever. I got sprinkled when I was an infant in the Catholic Church, and hey, I'm good to go. Once I'm saved, once I'm secured, I'm always saved. That is not true. What, why do we know that's not true? We know it's not true because of what Jesus said. When, when, when he talked about the parable of the sower and the seed, it is clear that there will be seed that is sown that gets squelched out, that doesn't last, doesn't endure. But the seed that is sown in, in what? The good soil that's been prepared by the Father, it's going to produce a harvest, right? You're going to live right if you are genuinely saved. So I believe if somebody's genuinely saved, they're, going to, they're saved, so then the conundrum is, where people get hung up on, is they say, whoa, 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 that means that they can sin and still be a Christian? Well, I think that would be the case, right? Because all of us still sin. Your pastor sins, <laughs> unfortunately, I still do. So, I mean, if we don't think we can sin and still be a Christian, that means, I mean, you're going to have a sinning pastor that might not be a Christian, So what's the truth? The truth is, is that nobody, nobody on this earth can ever look at somebody. I'm just going to talk to Miss Gloria. I can never tell Miss Gloria, say, Miss Gloria, I know you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but I'm telling you, you sin up to this point and you're going to lose your salvation. It's done. How would, how would I know that? How would I be able to look at anybody and say, you sin up to this point and it's over for you? I, that's not my realm. That's God's realm. God dwells in that realm. The realm I dwell in is temporary, as a temporary realm and the realm of God's word. And that's all we have. And I know that Christians love God. Christians repent of sin. Christians choose to follow God. Unbelievers don't. First John talks about that unbelievers do not acknowledge sin. A believer he confesses his sin. He who, he who confesses his sin, God is faithful and just to forgive him of his sins and cleanse him from all unrighteousness. That's what believers do. They confess sins. So, that's the, that's the conundrum. But I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a conundrum. When you're saved, you're saved. But you can't be saved and live like the devil because that's, that's contrary to your new nature. You guys follow me? Yeah. Amen. Okay, we can move on. Number four. Almost done. Number four. What's the fourth thing we learn from this section? We must fully embrace the work of God through his son. We must fully embrace the work of God through his son. That's what Jesus was after 
in this section where he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you have no part in me. That's what he's after. We're not going to go back and read that section. But this is what he's after. He's after that, that, we, that these people must fully embrace the work of God through him. They must fully embrace it. It's not, they, they, they cannot embrace him for superficial reasons. They can't embrace him for, for their temporary needs being met. They, can, they have to embrace him because he is the son of God and the only way to eternal life. It's not halfway. Jesus is making it clear through this analogy about eating his flesh and drinking his blood that salvation is centered around a person's belief in him as the only means of spiritual and eternal satisfaction in life. And that belief can never, and that belief can never be partial or halfway and be genuine. That's what he's saying through this section in John 6. It's all in. All your chips have to be on on Jesus' side using a gambling term <laughs> to, to preach the gospel. <laughs> got to be all in with Jesus. Not this halfway stuff. Well, Jesus, you, you, you fed me. I really like you. You're a nice guy. But man, all this stuff you're saying, it's really offending me. It's hard to hear. Well, then you have no part in him. You have no part in him. It's, it's all in. That belief can never be partial or halfway and be genuine. Matthew 16 Jesus begins to tell his disciples of the extreme means by which he was going to fulfill the plan of God, right? Let's, let's read this, and let's see what it culminates in. From that time, Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you. Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter didn't always get it right like he did earlier in John 6. But he turned and said to Simon Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You know the side note here? I'm sorry. I guess I keep doing these side notes. Don't ever be a Peter in somebody's life. Don't ever be a cause for somebody to stumble. And so what, what was Jesus? Was Jesus really calling Peter Satan like he was actually? No, he was saying that Peter was being used by Satan. And it was... It was something he had to rebuke and cast down. And that's what we should never be like Peter is in this moment to anybody in our life. We should never be a stumbling block to anybody. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, did you hear the extreme nature he talked about that he was going to go to? He was going to go to death. He was going to go to the cross. He was going to be ridiculed, spit on, beard ripped out, crown of thorns on his head, laughed at, mocked, spear in his side. Extreme nature. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, if anyone desires to be a seeker, you want to be a seeker? You want to come after me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's that's salvation. That's the gospel. That's believing in Jesus. It is a denying of your fleshly, lustful desires that used to rule your life. It is an embracing of the cross and the work that Jesus paid for you. And it is a lifestyle change. You follow him for the rest of your life. That's belief. Genuine conversion. For whoever desires to save his life, hold on to the things of this world, you're going to lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world 
and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing there who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's all in. And that's what Jesus is getting at in John 6. It's what he gets at in Matthew 16. It's what he gets at in the rest of the Gospels. It's all in. Rich young ruler, he looks at him. Rich young ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you've heard the commandments. Obey the commandments. He says, I've done them all since my youth. I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus looks at him and says, you still lack something. What did he lack? He lacked the ability to go all in. He was too rich. Jesus said, give away all that you have. Give it to the poor. Then come, follow me. Don't live according to the God of this world and love your money and your riches more than you love me. That is salvation. That is Christianity. All in. Lastly, in conclusion, we learned in John 6, people will reject the only means of salvation. People will reject the only means of salvation. This is the hard truth. John 6, 66 through 68, from that time, many of his disciples who said this is a hard saying went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. People are going to reject the only means of hope for them. This reality is a sobering one. People, people will willfully reject the truth. It reminds me now studying this morning of Romans 1. For the wrath of God, Romans 1, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what do these ungodly, unrighteous men do? They suppress the truth. They push the truth down in unrighteousness. They cloud out the truth. They drown out the truth by their sinful behavior. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. They have a conscience that God's given them. It's informed from God. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. God has made it clear that he is real, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. That's so sad. But that's what people do. They exchange the glory of God, the image of God, who God is, Christ and his glory, And they worship created things. They worship each other. They worship sensual pleasures. They worship money and career and fame and power and authority. They worship trees. They worship animals. They worship the environment. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worship and serve the creature rather than the, than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the reality. And it's a sobering reality. And I just want to end with this. I want to end with this. It is a reality that people will reject the only means of salvation. 
They'll, they'll, they'll reject that means of salvation by trying to earn it by works, and they'll never get there. They'll reject it by all out rejecting it and saying, there is no God. I'm going I'm to ignore creation. There's no God. This is all happenstance. I'm here by the result of a cosmic accident. And they'll reject God and his son Jesus, the only means of salvation. They'll, they'll reject the only means of salvation by being religious and, and by being superstitious. They'll reject it by just attending church but having a, and having a form of godliness but denying the power of Christ to save. They'll reject in many different ways. But I want to end with this. This is the cry of God. This is the cry of God for those who are chasing temporary things to find satisfaction. This is God's cry in Isaiah 55. It says, Ho! And ho means listen. Listen. Open your ears to all of you searching and pursuing things that are temporary and won't satisfy. Listen to me, God is saying. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You have no money. Come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money, your time, your, your energies, your thoughts for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, God says, and eat what is good. Eat of my flesh. Eat of me. Eat of Christ. Take him in. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you in the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Amen. It's the cry of God. Amen. Lord, we just thank you for your word, for the truth of your word. Thank you for this study in John 6. Lord, I just pray that you would burden on our hearts the reality of the true condition of those that don't know you, that they are thirsty, they are hungry, they are lost, they are spiritually dead and blind, and, and they're, they're searching after things that there are, there's no satisfaction in. They're looking to relationships and possessions and pleasures to try to find peace and hope and joy. And you, through your prophet Isaiah, speak to us and speak to everyone that, that we should come to you to find satisfaction to find healing to find hope to find salvation and i pray that you would burden us with that reality for those that are around us and i pray that you would use us to be a light for the gospel pray that many that we know that aren't saved they pray that they would come to salvation come to faith in jesus christ and lord i pray that they would do it for the praise and the glory of your name we pray this in jesus name amen Amen.